0: Hi there, this is Cindy Tonkin. I'm the Consultants Consultant. I work with data science teams, helping them work even smarter, faster and nicer. If you're brilliant and you want to be even better, this is the podcast for you. Ladies and gentlemen, today I have Jeremy Clopton, uh, who's going to tell you interesting things about who he is. Jeremy, what's your story? What do you do?
1: That's good to be here, Cindy. Uh, I am a director with Upstream Academy, Mm -hmm. and I help uh, accounting firms work toward high performance. So my background is actually in public accounting, uh, leading a big data and analytics practice for an accounting firm, a national accounting firm in the U.S., and led that for the last two years of my career. Uh, Before that, I actually worked in the forensics practice using technology to detect and prevent fraud. Uh, for probably the better part of about 10 years before I then uh, switched to leading an analytics practice. Uh, I left public accounting the end of 2017 uh, to start my own company, Uh, more focused on really helping people and companies figure out how to use analytics and how to use their data to make better decisions. Uh, lasted a few months before I was recruited to join Upstream and now uh, I'm still helping people uh, figure out how to use their data to make better decisions. Specifically, accounting firms. Right. Uh, I you know, help teach uh, anti-fraud experts on how to prevent and detect fraud uh, using technology, specifically, mm-hmm. as well as helping accounting firms figure out how to how to start an analytics service within their firm to help their clients make better decisions. So still doing a lot around analytics, just mm-hmm. kind of from a different approach, more of the help somebody else help their client oh, with yeah. analytics approach.
0: And you're in Vegas this week because you're teaching a program. What's that program about?
1: I am. I am currently in Las Vegas leading a three-day hands-on seminar for the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, mm-hmm. and it's using data analytics to detect and prevent fraud. Nice. So That's it nice. is three days hands-on. It's for really the introductory Uh, fraud examiner that's kind of new to data Mm -hmm. analytics. It could be somebody that has some experience, but uh, what I often find is if if they're already a data scientist, it's probably not going to be the right fit. It's going to be a little (laughs) bit dry on the, a little bit light on the data science side for those folks. Uh, But interestingly, uh, it really helps them figure out how to apply that to a fraud setting. So it works well if you're really tech savvy and analytics savvy, but unsure the application in fraud uh, or if you're a really good fraud examiner you're not really sure how to use technology. Uh, yeah, so yeah. it's a great way to bring everybody together and I mean we go from everything from uh, the beginning of what is the data analytics process. Uh, just the the phases of that we talk about cleaning data, prepping data, mm. all the way through okay well, now let's apply you know textual analytics to find the indications of corruption. So
0: uh, Ooh, we are nice. <laughs> so, so you probably have some pretty good uh, internal ways of explaining the complex to people who are a little data naive. What's your, if you were to give a tip or two on that, how do you do that? I
1: think the, the key on my approach to figuring out how to explain the, the complex things to someone that maybe just doesn't get that area it yeah. uh, is really to figure out what's going to resonate with them to start with, mm-hmm. and then tie it to something that they know. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you can tie it to something that they understand, uh, it's just going to make it that much easier. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the accounting world right now, you know, there's still, uh, I, I talk to accounting firms of all sizes, some are, you know, very data analytics focused and forward yes. uh, and then I talked with some firms that are still trying to figure out if data analytics is necessary and what does it even mean? Do for I have to do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, do I really need to go to the technology route? So, you know, it, it's something that you really have to break it down to something they understand. And for me, probably the, the one that I have to explain the most is machine learning. Yes. And yes. especially in uh, you know, any type of an introductory course on analytics, I think it's still incredibly relevant to touch on the topics of machine learning because the software companies are making it to where that is becoming pretty well a basic component of lots of analytics systems that I encounter. And a lot of my, you know, the clients that I would work with would encounter. So it really, it really helps to try to break it down to say, okay, well, here's, here's when you're teaching a machine and here's where the machine's learning on its own. And let's, you know, step away from the doomsday scenario. Everybody's, you know, the robots are coming to take your job and take over the world. And let's actually step back and think about this, you know, in in the context of what you understand. So for an auditor, it's, you know, breaking it down and saying, okay, if you were performing an audit, here's what it would look like if technology were helping you perform that and machine learning were involved. Uh, For my fraud examiners, you know, it works really well because, the augmented side of that with the supervised learning is so wonderful for fraud detection because you get the experience and the nuance of the fraud examiner and working with the technology to where they're really making each other stronger. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people resonate with that pretty quickly because they can say, okay, well, I see how, you know, it's, it's doing the really complex stuff, pulling out the relevant data based on what I've already taught it. And then I'm going to review that again. And then it's going to pull a better sample the next time. And it's just going to kind of iterate and people conceptually start to get it when you, you almost have to, you know, take the technology out of it. And, uh, Break it out of something else.
0: I've been noticing it's, it's, it seems to be that what a lot of people have in common in this when, when I ask them about this explanation is essentially what we're trying to do is describe an end state that they actually want. Here's the end state where this helps you do this, 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 and this that's hard or this, this, and this that takes a lot of time or this, this, and this that must be 100% accurate and the machine's going to be 100% accurate at that time even if you're not. Um mm-hmm. But, yes, it sounds like that you're kind of showing them an end state and also a, it's a Simon Sinek, you know, start with why things, why do you want to do this? Um, yeah, interesting. Cool. Thank yeah, you. I agree. I, and I, I mean, it's
1: like visualis- data visualization as well. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a common approach. You, you have to go to the audience first. Yeah. What matters to them? Yeah. And you have to do everything in their context. Yeah. and. To me, when it comes to analytics and data science and everything related to it, uh, I tend to focus more on the use and the application. Uh, I've never been the programmer. I've never been the builder. I've always been the user of the results or the leader of a team that was doing the analysis or doing some analysis myself. And I find that the more that you focus on the end user Mm -hmm. and the audience, so to speak, Mm Everything is so much, so much easier because you're thinking the way they would think. And it's, you know, I, if we all thought like data scientists or accountants with my background, we probably wouldn't explain things very well. <laughs> as it turns
0: <laughs> out, no, because the, the client isn't one of us necessarily. That's why we do what we do, and they do what they do. Uh, yeah, and, and, exactly. People have, I don't know if it's the same for your clients, but all the clients I speak to are really busy. They've got a lot of work. They've got a lot of things. They've got a lot of pressure. Their life is upside down. They're in the middle of flux of all kinds of different things. They just want it to be simple enough for them to not have to make the effort to think about it. So, yeah. Right. Cool.
2: Thank you for making the information. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, so talk to me. You're you're clearly as a as a professional who's who's learning teaching and training. You're probably someone who keeps up professionally with stuff. How, what do you do for your professional professional development?
1: For the, I, I kind of have two sides of it, right? I have the compliance side of it, where you've got to have certain training that meets yes. certain criteria. Uh, I try to attend conferences uh, that are relevant to the profession. Uh, yeah. Typically I speak at conferences uh, throughout the year. So I'll try to catch a couple of sessions here or there that are relevant yeah. at conferences. I'm already know, at, so I don't yeah. have, yeah. yeah, so I don't have additional travel, yeah. um, you know, and I'll do a webinar here or there. Uh, I get a lot of my, you know, compliance side training mm-hmm. through teaching. Uh, wow. Most of those hours count Yeah. to me professional development shouldn't be about that side of it. Uh, it shouldn't be about the compliance side of it, but all too often, I think it is. And again, working in the accounting industry, I see that a lot. Yeah. And one of the things that I like to do, I'm an avid reader. I absolutely love to read. Um, uh, my goal is typically to average about a book a week. Yes. Uh, it depends on if I'm flying. If I'm flying, I can typically get, um, you know, a book of flight or, yeah. you know, one direction or so.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, What's your recent reads that you loved?
1: So I recently read "Free to Focus" by Michael Hyatt. Okay,
0: uh,
1: it's actually uh, I was on the uh, the early release uh, list for that. Uh, I've read yes. a few of them. Yeah, things. So I think it actually, I think it actually comes out April 9th. Right. Uh, I'll tell you what, that was uh, to me a great one for any professional, okay. uh, any leader, because it. it uh, it has lots of processes in it. And I love processes. Uh, I even had a process for delegating appropriately, a process for creating. Pro- I mean, it was just spot on to where, you know, we're always busy. We're always on the move. You know, work could encompass everything if you wanted it to. I don't think anybody really wants it to. Uh, and it's a wonderful, uh, quick read on, you know, just how to do that nice um, so it was a Michael really good Hyatt's a,
0: Michael Hyatt's a favorite of yours are there any other piece books you'd recommend um I'm trying
1: to think on his he has um he has one around meetings I think it was called no fail meetings mm-hmm. you know meetings tend to be a time suck for most yeah. every professional yeah. uh so it's kind of a strategy to make sure that your meetings are useful uh, so it's a good one. I'm a fan of Michael Hyatt. Um, Patrick Lencioni, uh, is yes. one of my all time favorites, you know, especially from the consultant side of the house. Uh, getting naked is one of his best books, uh, I think on, you know, really, uh, especially as an analytics professional. Uh, yes. one of the things that I always had to you know, talk with folks about was, okay, we need to be business developers because we're consultants. Yeah. And what I found is a lot of analytics minded professionals, they don't really enjoy the business development side. They don't want to feel like a salesperson.
2: Nah.
1: Um, but in that book, it really, you know, it was really good about helping people you know figure out well you're just there to help. And if you talk about helping somebody, you get past that. Yeah. Um, so that was a good one. And, you know, if I want to go, go analytics or, um, data-focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, Factfulness by Hans Rosling uh, is a oh, great Oh, I love his
0: TED Talks so much. Yes. His TED Talks are just so wonderful. They raise you the standard of, oh, wow, here's an explanation for something that never even occurred to me to look for an explanation for. Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah,
1: yes. Cool. And I loved uh, his TED Talks are wonderful. His book was great. Yeah. Uh, and it really, you know, it, it talked about, how people can use data to play to our instincts and Mm -hmm. how we perceive data without really thinking about it. And to me, Ah. it helps you explore the dark side of data. Mm -hmm. And I think as a a professional that's using data, that's something that you always have to be top of mind. Mm -hmm. Um, A similar book on that was Weapons of Math Destruction, Kathy O'Neill. Again, wonderful TED Talk. I loved her TED Talk. I went out and bought the book after I saw it. And Ah. Yeah, it's one that I recommend to anybody that's using data and thinking, oh, well, I'm going to use, you know, advanced analytics, and I'm going to use all these models, and that's going to remove bias. And it's such a great reminder that if the data is biased to begin with, you're not doing anything but actually perpetuating and making it worse. So, mm-hmm. you know, to me, the two of those are wonderful, mm-hmm. uh, wonderful reads that mm-hmm. really keep you in check as far as what you could be doing with data or what you should be doing with data. <laughs> uh, so th- that, those are just a few. I've got a, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I've got a whole list.
0: Now, clearly you're a TED Talk fan. Um, I are, am. Are there, is, are there any particular TED Talks that you ha- have been blown away by? They don't have to be data analytics. They might be, but they don't
1: have to be. My all-time number one TED Talk is Shonda Rhimes. Uh, oh, I okay. think it was the my year of yes. Yes. Uh, that Ted talk, every time I watch it, uh, Mm kind of gives me chills. And it's one of those that, uh, really resonated. I heard it, I think for the first time, maybe three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've got three kids at home, uh, seven, just about just a few days away from turning five and then two. And, you know, it really, hit me that whole her whole uh the whole talk did and i i've used that for a lot of you know different classes and i'll recommend that one to people it's just a it's just an outstanding talk
0: yeah 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 yes i i actually for some reason i've seen that one i don't always see everything on i've seen that one i do remember yeah. it stick out amazingly um yes the podcasts yeah, um, this one, which obviously you devour every every moment that it comes yes, out.
1: Always <laughs> looking for the new episode. Yes. <laughs> um, the other other podcasts, you know, I've I've listened to a lot of podcasts.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there aren't a ton that I listen to just completely dedicated to yeah, regularly. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Probably my favorite is, that would fall into that category is Masters of Scale by Reed Hoffman. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I just love how he gets with some of the talks with some of the biggest leaders uh, of our time, whether they're CEOs or not, and really just breaks down how they got there. Uh, Every single episode, I feel like there's something you can learn and take away immediately and apply. And I, to me, that's always what I'm looking for is I want something actionable where, you know, I can apply it either in what I do every day. Mm -hmm. or I can take it to somebody that I'm working with and I can give them uh, an immediate actionable takeaway, Mm -hmm. uh, that I get from something that, you know, I've consumed content wise, whether it's Mm -hmm. podcast, book, video. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, you are on the road a lot. Yeah. How many days a year are you on the road generally?
1: I'm probably on the road about a hundred, 110 nights a year.
0: Okay. So that's, that's good. It's not, it's not great. It'd be nice to have more time at home probably. But yes. You know, it's also good to work 110 days a week. 110 it is, days week. It we is good. Work, apparently. It's, 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 it's kind of useful for us. What's, so given that you're on the road a lot, what kind of routines do you have? Like you said before you were a runner. Um, how do you keep yourself healthy and wise?
1: Routine-wise, I tend to I try to start every day the same. Uh mm-hmm. start with water, start with some type of exercise, uh, whether it's walking or running, something uh, just to get the day started. Mm-hmm. Uh it always works out better. The day always goes better if I get some type of exercise before I start. Mm-hmm. Uh, admittedly, that's also not always Uh, what happens you know especially like the first day of a seminar you know you want to get down there and get set up and make sure uh,
0: okay and all that stuff yeah yeah,
1: you got to get everything just you know just right and you know sometimes you you tend to skip it a little bit but I'll always try to get some type of exercise during the day Mm -hmm. Um, I use an app called streaks and it tracks it allows you to you know the things that you want to do every day so know i have a certain certain amount of water that i want to drink every day and that you know it keeps me with a reminder every so often hey you're you're behind you need to you know drink more water
0: drink up drink up up.
1: exactly exactly uh so it's always you know try to try to start every day the same try to end every day the same um and what happens in between you know i can't always control Um, but I generally, unless you're traveling early in the morning or late at night, right. You've always got the, you've always got control over the start and the end of the day. So trying to make sure that those are regular uh, and involves family time, you know, talking with my wife and kids, whether it's FaceTime or sending a quick video or text messages or whatever it is, always trying to have that consistency, um, because it helps to, uh, just kind of keep you, you know, in a routine. And mm-hmm. I think that's a big thing is just having that consistency day over day.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. So that's one of your routines that helps you kind of work smarter. What other things do you do to work smarter? What can you recommend as a good practice from your perspective?
1: I tend, I, I tend to try a lot of apps. Uh, I will readily admit uh, technology. As it to, yeah. Yeah. Technology, is a term that doesn't always uh, make me work smarter. Sometimes it makes me uh, just feel like I am. Uh, that said, the one that I find that I've had the most success with is Asana. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, even though I'm the only one right now, I, actually, I've got some of my team that I work with is starting to use it as well. Mm-hmm. To me, I'm able to track every conference, every event, every client that I'm working with. It has its own project. I can put all the tasks on there, put due dates on everything. And at any point in time, I always have that ability to say, okay, what's my next must-do?
2: Right.
1: So to me, uh, using that is really important. Hmm. Uh, When I'm in the office, I always try to start, and I think I got this idea from Kevin Cruz, uh, which is uh, another author uh, that I'd recommend Has yeah. great books on productivity. Yeah. Uh, but I always start with my prime three and that's kind of a, a I use way too many puns in life probably, but you know, with it being a prime, I'm like, all right, we'll go with the prime. And it's the three things that I got to get done that day and any, you know, that's always my focus. And I try to get those three knocked out before I do anything else. Um, I'm most productive in the morning. So I, my goal is to try to get those knocked out before lunch and then, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever else needs to happen after lunch, I I can get stuff done then, but try to focus my top three things in my most productive hours. Right. I'd say the last thing that I do is time blocking on my calendar Mm -hmm. and that's something that it's, it has its, uh, elements of success. It depends on who you work with. Uh, I will say the folks that I work with right now are wonderful at time blocking and, um, understanding the whole concept and, I've used it for years, though I've used it, you know, in other companies as well. And I'll put my projects on my calendar and just simply say it's an appointment. Don't schedule a meeting. Don't schedule a call. Uh, I need this time to work on an important project.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I also found that useful when I was leading a team uh, where I had uh, eight different data analysts that were reporting to me, and across I think we were across three time zones at the time. Is mm-hmm. I was I would put a block on my calendar. Uh, you know in the afternoon a two hour block three days a week that was just for the team and they knew that if they had any questions at all that weren't urgent if it was urgent they could always get a hold of me if need be but to accumulate the questions and then during that time it was completely open to anybody on the team they called I wasn't working on anything where I couldn't be interrupted yeah
0: yeah exactly basically you had office hours. it's one of the it's yeah. a David Allen, um, who's the productivity guy? I don't know. Uh, there's a productivity to do list guy. Oh, yeah. He basically says, if you haven't got office hours, get them. Makes yeah. a huge difference. And I'm always, I'm continually surprised at people who manage other people who don't have office hours, who are yeah. themselves, you know, dealing with urgent and important things all the time. so They never have time to deal with the not urgent, but important stuff like managing the team, helping them get right. work better, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, they get stressed. It's a, it's a stress bucket thing.
1: It, it, yeah. it is. You're never in quadrant two, right? The no, cover exactly. principle is quadrant two. And I talk to people all the time, and admittedly, his advice for how to spend more time in quadrant two is yeah. spend more time in quadrant two, which yeah, exactly. is a touch annoying, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's true is you, you have to be intentional about it. And I tell people that all the time. Um, and it's always, Oh, well, I, you know, I don't have the time to do that. I need to have an open door policy. Um, and I just started a book that came out today. Uh, and it's called, um, great leaders don't have rules.
2: Right. Okay.
1: I'll have to let me, I have my Kindle right here as any right. good avid reader does. Give me a yes. second. Great leaders have no rules, contrarian leadership principles to transform your team and business. And it's by Kevin Cruz, the author that oh. I just mentioned.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And in and it, mother, you know, he's yeah. talking about get rid of the, the whole open door policy. You know, shut your door yeah. and have office hours. It's one of the possible recommendations, and I love it. it it's yeah, yeah. brilliant.
0: Well, I also find, I, I remember working with a manager, oh, a couple of years ago, who's like, I have an open door policy, and the first thing she did was shut her door, just speak to me. I'm like, <laughs> So you don't have an open door policy if you close your door. That's, right. So stop saying you've got an open door. Like what you're doing is fine. Just don't call it an open
1: door policy. Like, right. By definition, your door is closed. By
0: definition, yeah. you <laughs> haven't got an open door. Policy if your door is closed. That's it. Full stop. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned you work with a team of of, of eight analysts at some at some point. Uh, Talk to me about recruiting. How do you what What did you look for when you recruited analysts, or when you help people recruit analysts? What What should they be looking for? I think
1: when people are recruiting analysts, um, you can always look for the technology side. Do they have the right software skill sets? Do they have, you know, this degree or that degree? Mm -hmm. I am personally of the opinion. None of that is as important as people think it is, especially in the areas of data science and data analytics. There's so many uh, self taught citizen data scientists uh, yeah, the best uh, team member that I had probably the most brilliant who was you know developing you know uh, tools that would read emotion out of email and well right. before that was the thing that people were developing get an accounting degree yeah but he was really passionate about technology and loved what he did. And he was brilliant in that. <laughs> and if you would have looked for him, you know, tried to find him based on you know certain classes or certain degrees or certain this or that, it wouldn't have ever met a criteria that somebody was looking for. So um, the first thing that I typically would do is kind of get past all of that and start to say, okay, well, what are their critical thinking skills? Mm-hmm. what are their creative abilities? I think that creativity is something that's incredibly underrated when it comes to analysts.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, historically, in my experience anyway, the people that are lacking creativity are the ones that you're going to have to handhold the most. Yeah. Uh, it's those folks that have that creativity, that have the critical thinking ability, that love to solve problems. They're going to be the ones that really are gonna be your star performers because they're gonna go try to find you know solutions to these problems they're gonna think about it in ways that nobody's thought about it before which when it comes to data science and analytics to me is incredibly critical
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know I again I when I when I led that team I was at an accounting firm and I think I over the course of that you know we had, we had a handful of people that had accounting degrees that uh, we recruited from within. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that I hired externally: um, two math degrees, one with marketing, one with criminal justice,
2: yeah.
1: um, and I think one with an analytics degree. Uh, but you know, it's you really have to. It's not about
0: the numbers, is it?
1: No, and it's so much. It's kind of like what we talked about earlier. It's so much about the audience and can you actually get somebody to use the numbers. Yeah. And when it came to you know, dashboarding and visualization and creating actionable intelligence, the person on our team with the marketing background was phenomenal because her thought process was more marketing and nice. thinking about communicating messages. And that's something that most data analysts and uh, data scientists, that's not really something that's focused on. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, a skill that I look you know I look for, and I realize it's hard to hard to look for the skill of creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really comes down to, you know, in the interview process, you know asking the questions, How have you solved problems like this? How would you solve a problem like this?" Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that's it's got to be those um, it, it's those intangibles that are so yeah. much more important than the degrees, because again, the software, the technology itself right now. Mm -hmm. is getting to where it's really easy to use. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's easier than it's ever been. The software vendors, most of them that I encounter anyway, they have lots of training on how to use their software. I need somebody that's going to be able to apply it and solve a problem, Mm -hmm. not rebuild it. Now, if you're recruiting for somebody to build it, yeah, the technical is going to be a little bit more important. If you need somebody that can write the algorithm, then you're going to have to look for somebody with experience in writing algorithms Mm -hmm. in that language. I get that. Um, But for a lot of companies, you know, they need somebody that can apply the technology in a way that helps their business get measurably better, not build software from scratch.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, So talk to me about, well, based on that, you are saying that's what makes a better or worse data analyst is someone who can do those things and not just do numbers. So we kind of answered that question. Is there more you want to say about? What makes a better or worse data scientist?
1: Or Well, I think, you know, it kind of comes down to two different things. Um, I, to me, a data analyst and a data scientist, I don't know if those, you know, are used interchangeably uh, by no, everybody.
0: They are. I think people prefer to write scientists than analysts. Oh, yeah. They're different, but they aren't, <laughs>
1: you know. Yeah, so well, I, I think yeah. they both work, and I think those skills apply to both. Um, I tend to think the data scientists are those that are doing a bit more of the coding and a bit more of the building, whereas the analyst is more the application of the technology. I do think you have to have the technical expertise if you're hiring a data scientist. Uh, Mm -hmm. You do need somebody that can, obviously, that can architect a solution. Yeah, yeah doesn't mean they need to be a computer, you know, software engineer, uh, Mm. but they need to be able to, you know, program the models uh, to work the way they do. Mm. A lot of times for analysts, and that's a lot of the folks that I've worked with and the companies that I work with, what they're looking for are analysts. They need somebody that can apply the technology, not
2: build it.
0: Mm. Cool. So I'm going to ask you a different question now. What's your favorite charity? I know you're on the board of a few. So talk to me about your favorite charity. Is I am.
1: So my favorite charity is the Making Hope Fund, and I will readily admit I am somewhat biased for two reasons. One, I'm on the board, and second, my wife founded it right. uh, along with her mother. So I am uh, very biased in that yeah. regard, but the Making Hope Fund, uh, it's a charity that we started last year 2018 we started the charity mm-hmm. and its mission is to help ease the burden of uh, caregivers that have a loved one going through serious medical treatment so uh, someone who has a family member that's going through chemotherapy cancer treatment or some other long-term type of care uh really helping focus on the caregivers and uh how you know some of uh, addressing some of their needs, whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, whatever it may be. Uh, you know, we're still really young in this, obviously. Um, it sounds like it's something that uh, came from personal experience, which is yes. true.
2: Yes.
1: Uh, it, it came from, uh, my father-in-law being diagnosed with uh, lymphoma, uh, about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just seeing there, there was a lot there in place to help him. and and take care of him Uh, but watching my mother-in-law you know taking helping take care of him as well and just you know everything that um everything that she had to deal with in that whether it was travel whether it was looking for okay where am I going to go grab lunch or dinner where are we going to stay different things like that um really helped uh, to shine a need on that and uh so we started it uh, formally incorporated in 2018, mm-hmm. um, my mother-in-law and then my wife uh, being the co-founders
2: yeah. and
1: uh, just wrapped up our first uh, fiscal year at the end of 2018, uh, doubled our fundraising goals. We were really excited. And uh, Thank yeah. you. We were uh, very excited by that and looking forward to uh, an even bigger 2019.
0: And it's based in which, so you're in the U.S., but which particular state is it based in? It's
1: yes, like- we are. Uh, so it is based in Missouri uh, oh. in the United States, uh, specifically in Nixa, Missouri, mm-hmm. which is uh, just about smack dab in the middle of the country. It's down in the southwest corner of the state.
0: Right. Okay. Cool. Um, so let me see. Are there any other questions I need to ask you? Any? Oh, lessons learned. If you had a, you know, I've learned this in my career, what's that? <sighs>
1: Lessons learned, that's a, that's a great question.
0: Yeah, these are one of those <laughs> questions where you're like, oh, I don't know, I've talked about my favourite authors and I've actually said a lot of wise things already. Um, is there anything that you kind of go, yeah, I had this manager when I was, you know, knee-high a grasshopper. That manager taught me this thing that stayed with me forever.
1: I'd say one of the, one of the lessons is, you know, it's, it's really to believe in who you are. Yeah. Um, you know, my background, I, I'm, I'm an accountant. That's my degree. That was, I, you know, I went to school to become an accountant, specifically a forensic accountant doing fraud investigations. I, I had no computer background other than the fact I really, really like Microsoft Excel and I'm a bit of a data nerd. Uh,
0: the, and, I think that Excel is the answer to the, all the universe's problems and everybody can solve everything if they just have no Excel. If you know
1: Excel, it gets, it's going to get you a, a lot farther ahead in life than yeah. if you don't, I think. Right. Um, okay. And it, it's so, it's so foundational to analytics. And I know a lot of people say, oh, my gosh, it's Microsoft Excel. But if you can do it in Excel or you can think about it in Excel, you can apply it to any other technology. It's such a yeah. great starting point. Yeah, um, yeah. It's not the best solution in the world. I'll readily admit there's probably better software. Yeah. But it's a great place to start. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I'd say, you know, believing in who you are and that uh, it doesn't matter what your background, doesn't matter your titles, doesn't matter uh, your degrees. Um, If you want a career in something, go make a career in something. Um, I was passionate about data. I was passionate about technology. I still am. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that got me to where I was at as far as leading an analytics practice in a national accounting firm. You know, from there, uh, I've always been passionate about public speaking and teaching. Uh, I love teaching other professionals and uh, was looking for a way to turn that into a career. So -hmm. that's why I left public accounting to start a company. Uh, You know, subsequently to that, again, I was uh, recruited and joined Upstream Academy. And now I teach and speak full time for a living. And it's wonderful because now I get to teach other people. Yeah, how to believe in themselves um, and you know how to just go do what you want to do. Um, I work with a lot of emerging leaders. In fact, one of our big programs is an emerging leaders Academy for the accounting profession. And it teaches young professionals how to be partners in accounting firms. And, and one of the other, you know, along those lines, I'm helping firms figure out how to have an account, have an analytics practice in their firm. Mm -hmm. And, for a lot of people, they may have that professional that's you know really passionate about technology, really passionate about data. May not have the right degree. You know, to me, you've got to believe that you can do it. Um, you know, I learned that lesson. Gosh, it was probably within my first eighteen months of my career, and I was going to be testifying in a fraud investigation case that I'd been working on, mm-hmm. and was talking with my managing partner. I said, "I I know." exam is going to go. I I haven't passed the CPA exam yet. I'm still working through that. I'm not a certified fraud examiner yet. Why on earth are they going to consider me an expert? And he said, because you are one. And here's why you are one. And he, you know, based on my experience, what I was working with the training that I'd gone through, he goes, those letters after your name aren't what make you an expert. It's Mm -hmm. what you do that makes you the expert that you are. And, And to me, that's really struck, you know, stuck with me. Um, it's, it's so true. And it's something that uh, you've always got to remember. I think now uh, popular literature calls it imposter syndrome. Uh, I think, you know, where you, you're not sure yeah. If, yeah, if you're the expert that you're, you know, well, yeah, you are. At some point yeah. someone's going to
0: walk in and go, you're a fraud and we know it and you should be at it. Right. That's the imposter syndrome. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. But you've got to walk in there and you've got to say, no, I'm the expert. Here's why. And believe it. And you just got to, you have to do that. Nobody else can do it for you. You've got to believe that you are the expert that you are. And it's amazing the difference it makes uh, when you're willing to just take that and, and go with it.
0: Well, Jeremy, that sounds like a perfect place to say thank you very much for lending your expertise and for believing in yourself enough to be on my podcast I've had a fabulous time. Maybe in a few months when I think of some new questions, I might ask you to be on again. Would you be on
1: again? Yeah, I would love to, Cindy. It's been fun. Thank you.
0: This is Cindy Tonkin. I'm the consultant's consultant, and you've been listening to Smarter Data People. This is part of what I do to understand how it is that data Scientists can be more effective in the workplace, smarter, faster and nicer. And if you have a team and you're finding them harder to manage than they could be, if you're constantly trying to squeeze more out of your budget and out of their time, and if you've got stakeholders or they've got stakeholders who are less than happy sometimes, maybe a lot more than sometimes, it can be really annoying and it can make you feel incompetent, I can help you help them get to the important problems faster, target the wasted time and save you time and money, and ultimately delight stakeholders so that you can feel competent again. It's such a good feeling. Talk to me.